Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. This week's episode is special. This is our 50th original episode of Bench Talk, the week in science. So we've got a great show lined up for you today. We're going to start off by finishing my report from last week about the American Society of Plant Biologists chapter conference that was held at West Virginia University in March. Check out our July 15, 2019 episode to hear the full report on that conference. But in it, I describe seven important research techniques that plant biologists are using to better understand how plants work. As my seventh example, I was discussing the keynote address by Dr. Elizabeth Haswell of Washington University, St. Louis. The technique she was discussing is called the patch clamp technique, and that's to study ion exchange across plant membranes. But at the end of her talk, she discussed a science podcast that she's been part of for the past few years. We'll start today's show with a discussion of that podcast. Then I want to tell you about an interesting commentary made about STEAM education. Now, you've heard of STEM education, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM. Add an A to that, and you get STEAM, and the A stands for art. Now, following that will be a short story about the fireflies that we see flashing in the early evening hours right now. Of course, the most important reason for all that flashing is to find a mate for firefly reproduction. But there appears to be another advantage for fireflies to flash like that. Well, listen into the show and you can find out. Then we'll finish up the episode with a commentary by Professor Scott Miller about the science behind global climate change. There's actually a few commentaries on this episode, so I should remind you that any views or opinions you hear on this show are either that of the speaker or that of the scientist whose paper we are featuring. So these opinions are not the opinions of this radio station. So let's get this show started by hearing about Elizabeth Haswell's podcast. The other thing that Dr. Haswell spoke about that I was particularly interested in was her podcast about science. Her podcast is called The Taproot, and she and a colleague who works at the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center in St. Louis have been making this podcast since 2015. So The Taproot really focuses on plant biology. They'll concentrate on a single research paper and interview at least one of the co-authors of that paper to give the personal stories behind that research. I think what they're trying to do is put a human face on scientific research. So the show is geared for young plant scientists, like from college age on up to postdoc. But even if you don't fit that category, you could still check this podcast out. I enjoy it and you will too. I think if you just do an internet search for the Taproot podcast, I think you'll find it. And I'll provide a link on our Facebook page, too. Dr. Haswell described some of the advantages to producing science podcasts, and I think her point was that she's encouraging other scientists to consider podcasting themselves. 
Some 44% of Americans over the age of 12 have listened to a podcast. There are some 550,000 different active shows on the air right now, so there's a lot of options to choose from. The barriers to accessing podcasts is relatively low. All you really need is a computer or a smartphone. And, and for our Bench Talk show, all you really need is an FM radio. She talked about how there aren't too many barriers to produce or distribute a podcast. Like for this show, I just use a laptop with a microphone, along with the great cooperation of Forward Radio, WFMP, here in Louisville. Podcast producers and podcast listeners are inherently very ethnically and racially diverse, which means that any broadcaster can impact a very broad swath of people. And podcasting is a great way to touch on topics that commercial media companies just don't want to deal with. Podcasters can discuss social justice issues if they want. Just on our show, Bench Talk the Week in Science, in the last 11 months that we've been on the air, we've dealt with controversial issues like the labeling of genetically modified food, coal spills, biowarfare, gender dysphoria, football concussions, violence in video games, alternative agriculture, the Holocaust, horse racing accidents, inequality, e-cigarettes, intersex, the Monsanto Company, the Tuskegee Study, junk food, and eco-activism. We've covered a lot of different topics. We're still looking for other scientists who might want to try their hand at podcasting, so if you happen to be a scientist and you're listening to this show right now, contact us if you would like to contribute a story to this show. You could record just one story, or you could record one per week if you want. doesn't matter. Just contact us on our Facebook page. In Facebook, just search for Bench Talk, The Weekend Science. And then our email address is given at the end of this show, too. Art, literature, modern languages, philosophy. What do these things have to do with science? Well, I recently came across an interesting opinion piece in this online publication called The Conversation. The conversation serves as a clearinghouse for academics around the world who wish to communicate with journalists and the public about the important issues of the day. The article I want to talk about is called STEAM, Not STEM, Why Scientists Need Arts Training. It was published in the January 17, 2018 issue of The Conversation and was written by Dr. Richard Lackman, a computer scientist who is professor in the School of Media at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. Well, you probably already know what STEM means. S-T-E-M stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Well, STEAM, S-T-A-M, has an A inserted into it, and that stands for Art. And this article is about STEM education. You know, how should we be educating our young scientists, technologists, engineers, and mathematicians? And Dr. Lackman is basically saying we need to insert some arts and humanities into STEM education. Near the beginning of his piece, Dr. Lackman asked the question, quote, How can universities train our scientists, technologists, and engineers to engage with society rather than perform as cogs in the engine of economic development? Unquote. In his answer to that question, he says, quote, I believe we need our educational system to engage students with issues of ethics and responsibility in science and technology. 
we should treat required arts and humanities courses not as some vague attempt to broaden minds, but rather as a necessary discussion of morals, values, ethics, and responsibility, unquote. He complains that students in the STEM fields are too concerned with learning their discipline and getting good jobs and don't fully appreciate the moral and ethical impacts of what they do. And he gives some examples. First, big data and the software algorithms that are used to analyze big data. That kind of thing is permeating our life these days. He cites a book that came out in 2016 called The Weapons of Math Destruction, How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. This book is written by Dr. Kathy O'Neill. And O'Neill was a mathematician who taught at Barnard College for a while and then quit her job in 2007 to work on Wall Street. She witnessed firsthand the role of mathematical modeling in serving as an accomplice to the mortgage-backed securities debacle that led to the Great Recession of 07 and 09. She got disillusioned with Wall Street and, in 2011, ended up joining the Occupy movement. In addition to this book, Dr. Kathy O'Neill has a blog where she is known as The Math Babe, but some examples of how these computer algorithms are used. All that targeted advertising that you see when you use Google or social media. The way your credit score is calculated, and that's important because that determines your access to mortgages and insurance. How teachers are evaluated. This thing called predictive policing. How job applications are automatically screened by computers. All of these types of software applications are protected by intellectual property law, so they can't really be scrutinized by the rest of us, even though they impact us in many, many ways. Second example, the use of CRISPR and gene drives in academia and in the biotech industry. These techniques are basically ways to alter the DNA of organisms permanently in such a way that the changes scientists make to the DNA of these organisms actually gets passed on to future generations. His third example of how STEM raises important moral or ethical issues, geoengineering, the idea that we can massively alter the Earth's land, oceans, polar regions, the atmosphere, in order to ameliorate the negative effects of climate change. These are all really frightening technologies, and I would personally add a couple others to the list, like virtual reality, artificial intelligence, robotics, and smartphones and Fitbits that track our every movement. Lackman thinks that, quote, we need to make sure STEM graduates working in these fields are able to engage with the toughest questions of our time. What, where, and how should our new inventions be engaged? Unquote. He would like to see university STEM educators encourage students to consider the social impact of these technologies. Dr. Lackman thinks that empathy, ethics, and citizenship can be taught through the arts and humanities. This is sort of a novel idea. Most of the literature I see on STEAM education discusses how the arts can encourage science and math students to be more engaged, to think critically, to foster collaboration, to be creative, to problem solve, to appreciate the importance of aesthetics in marketing, and to be effective communicators. Not a lot about the ethics or morality of their actual research. 
Now, this author's ideas aren't quite as severe as the perspective that Pete Seeger, the folk singer, had about science, though. Pete Seeger didn't think that scientists should even pursue basic knowledge just for the sake of getting knowledge. Seeger was worried about how all that scientific information could be used. Some past examples of science gone wrong might be fracking, the development of trans fats, or the atomic bomb. Check out our broadcast of May 13, 2019 to hear more about Pete Seeger. I don't think that Richard Lachman is saying that basic research shouldn't even be done. I think he's saying that when it comes to using that information to develop specific technologies, he would like scientists to ask, is this really necessary? And not just, how quickly can this technology be commercialized? Or, do you want to join our startup? I agree that scientists, engineers, mathematicians need to consider the moral and ethical impact of their efforts, and that the arts and the humanities, which does include philosophy, theology, and history, by the way, those things are invaluable in preparing people for that. One of the deficits that I see among many scientists is the attitude that we should just remain rational, analytical, and detached from our work. Too many have the idea that we are just gathering knowledge and we don't really have to be so concerned with how that information is used by others. I personally don't have that attitude about my own work, but I know others do. Another attitude that I think is erroneous that I see among some scientists is the concept that there isn't a problem out there that can't be solved without a good dose of science and technology. This might be an extension of the view that everything in the world is knowable and measurable, and all we need is more science and scientists, and maybe funding, in order to learn all that. Really? Is everything knowable? Another advantage I see for scientists experiencing the arts and humanities more is in communicating. We can't talk about science to the general public in the same way that we would talk about our work among our colleagues. Scientists have got to learn to speak more passionately and in a way that makes science more understandable when speaking to the lay audience. And I think the arts and humanities can help us do that. But it's hard. I've been involved with this science show for 10 months now, and I'm still trying to figure this one out. But we are doing our part on this show. Dr. Leslie Moise, one of the best poets in Louisville, has already read two poems on this show that she specifically wrote about our science stories. Check out our episodes from February 11th and May 20th of 2019 to hear her poems. I think I'll finish the story with a quote by Albert Einstein that might apply to this question of the role of the arts and humanities in science and math. He said, quote, Not everything that could be counted counts. And not everything that counts can be counted. And then, fireflies! I hope you've been getting out in the early evenings this summer to watch the fireflies, or when I was a kid, we called them lightning bugs. If you haven't seen them in the Louisville area yet, you better get out there soon, as their mating season only lasts a few weeks. Of course, it's commonly known that the primary reason fireflies have that flashing abdomen is to attract a mate. Both male and female fireflies intermittently glow like we've seen them. The females are typically on the ground in the grass observing the sky above and not flashing very much. 
while the males typically fly above, but flashing in specific patterns that are unique to that species of firefly. When a female spots a male that is producing the desired flashing pattern, she might also start flashing the same pattern. Then the male sees that and moves in closer, flashing its unique pattern more frequently until the loving couple has their rendezvous. The glow that fireflies produce is due to large amounts of a bioluminescent substrate called luciferin. Luciferin is named after Lucifer, who's the devil in the King James Bible, but is actually a more ancient reference to the planet Venus. Luciferin is a three-ring organic molecule that's synthesized in large quantities in the firefly's abdomen, and in the presence of the enzyme luciferase, as well as ATP, calcium, and oxygen, a chemical reaction occurs that produces a bright yellowish glow. And it's kind of interesting, this bioluminescent reaction is almost 100% energy efficient. Almost all of that chemical energy in these substrates ends up being released as light energy. Well, compare that to the old incandescent light bulbs we used to use. They only had 10% efficiency. 90% of that electricity was wasted. So these fireflies, they are very efficient. Anyway, some researchers at Boise State University in Idaho recently published a paper pointing out another advantage to the flashing displays that fireflies put on every night. Protection from predators. Now, since fireflies are so much more active and visible in the evening, it makes sense that one of their most important predators are going to be bats. Now, of course, bats mostly use echolocation to see at night, which means that they emit this ultrasound from their larynx, which goes off, bounces off objects, and that resulting echo is detected by the bats themselves. Since bats are so exquisitely evolved to see at night by echolocation, many biologists thought that the flashing lights that fireflies make wouldn't even be recognized by bats. But these researchers took the effort to painstakingly paint the abdomens of fireflies to see if that would alter the ability of bats to see them. They painted over the glowing part of the firefly with black paint so the glow wouldn't be visible to others. And you know what happened after these painted fireflies were released to bat populations? They had a harder time seeing the fireflies. Now, fireflies taste bad. That's due to a chemical they also make called lucibophagin. And lucibophagin is similar to the venom of poisonous Chinese toads. So once a bat tastes one of these insects, they've learned their lesson and they're not going to feed on them again. So the theory is that once bats learn to recognize the flashing glow of a firefly, as long as they do know that fireflies taste bad, they leave them alone. These researchers theorize, however, that bats are also using echolocation to recognize fireflies, because even those with blackened out abdomens, the bats were eventually able to recognize the lightning bug. Presumably that's by their flight patterns. Now there's another kind of insect that flies at night, moths, M-O-T-H-S. Now night flying moths also taste bad to bats, but moths produce a distinctive noise that signals their presence to bats. So apparently, night-flying insects can produce either noises, flashes of light, 
or can move in specific flight patterns to fend off potential predators. So it's a good thing we're learning more about the biology of these fascinating insects because firefly populations are generally on the decline due to the use of insecticides, due to light pollution, like streetlights, and habitat destruction. So it's not bats that are threatening firefly populations. It's us. Scott here. I was reading in the Courier-Journal the other day where scientists announced that carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere peaked at a level that hasn't been recorded in human history and was the highest level in more than a million years. Now, some of you might be curious about how numbers going back before humans were in a position to record data might be discovered. Ice cores are one source of such deep records, among others. For example, on the Carbon Dioxide Information Analysis Center website, I found ice core records from Antarctic ice dating back some 800,000 years. One finds the carbon dioxide recordings alone fluctuated between about 175 to 180 parts per million at the low end to just under 300 parts per million over that span. They also record methane levels, another greenhouse gas, and nitrous oxide levels for the same time frame. A 400,000 year sample yielded similar swings of between 200 to less than 300 parts per million for carbon dioxide alone. A link from this site leads to the National Centers for Environmental Information site, which is part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Here you can find information about other ice core sample results. In addition, you can find information gotten from tree ring studies, corals, and ocean and lake sediments. Playing with any of this data would make for a good citizen science project. One outcome of tree ring studies I coincidentally ran into while reading the June 2019 issue of the NASA Global Climate Change News involved the use of tree ring data, historical rain and temperature measurements, and modern satellite-based soil moisture measurements concluded that we humans, in our continued use of fossil fuels, have influenced global droughts over the past 100 years. This study, titled NASA Study Human Influence on Global Droughts Goes Back 100 Years, was conducted by NASA's Goddard Institute of Space Studies and was first published in the journal Nature. According to the article, tree rings thickness indicates wet and dry years across the lifespan of a tree, providing an ancient record to supplement written and recorded data. You might recall from your elementary or high school years that one can count tree rings to determine the age of a tree that has fallen or been cut down. The parts you might not recall or weren't told was that the thickness can be changed over time due to climate changes over the lifetime of the tree as well. In the same climate change news article that I mentioned earlier, one also finds an article entitled, New Studies Increase Confidence in NASA's Measure of Earth's Temperature in which one reads that NASA's estimates of long-term temperature rise in recent decades is accurate to within less than one-tenth of a Fahrenheit degree. Now, I am not a client scientist. I have been trained in physics and astronomy. But recently, I hosted a competition at a Science Olympiad event hosted by my community college in which I had students fill a flask with water and heat it. While heating it, they were to measure the change in height of the water column over a specified temperature range and graph the results. What I know as one trained in physics is that heated objects tend to expand. 
and water will do this as well as solids. Those student teams that completed the exercise and were able to come up with a graph could clearly see this result. You can observe this same change in height of a fluid if you pour yourself a hot cup of coffee or tea. Let it stand and cool. Pour yourself a second cup if you feel the need to drink something. You will notice that with cooling, the level of the fluid in the cup will drop. Depending on the width of your cup, it may not seem to drop a lot, but the fact of the matter is that when hot, it had a larger volume than when cool. And this gets us back to the concern with levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. My training as an astronomer has led me to understand that a moderate greenhouse effect is necessary for a planet to potentially sustain life. Our own planet, at its distance from the sun, would experience a rough average temperature of about 33 degrees Fahrenheit. With no air to trap heat, that would lead to much colder temperatures at night than during the day. And of course, with no atmosphere, keeping liquid water on the surface would be nearly impossible to begin with. Our atmospheric gases provide a means of trapping the sun's heat to result in more moderate temperatures as well as moderate changes in temperature from day to night. So a moderate greenhouse effect is necessary for life to continue. But that means balance. And what we are running into now is a lack of balance. If the atmosphere continues to be out of balance due to increases in carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, the result will be higher average temperatures. And higher average temperatures mean an increase in the volume of water that covers most of our planet's surface. Low-lying areas here in the U.S. and around the world are already experiencing this. Now, politicians, seemingly concentrated in one particular political party, deny all of this or deny that it is human-induced. Their concern is jobs and profits, short-term gains, if you will, and they seem to care little about the long-term issues of this planet. They cast fear in the form of claims of higher utility bills if we wean ourselves of fossil fuels or that jobs in the coal fields will be lost. Of course, they don't do anything about those job losses, nor do they provide monies to educate those displaced workers so that they can be gainfully employed again in a different field. But they can still cast that fear in search for votes. And those that vote for them are at fault too, especially the one-issue voters that support them. Rather than look at the whole package supported by these politicians, the one-issue voter only looks at one issue, and that one thing is often the equivalent of clickbait on social media sites, something that catches the interest while ignoring the bigger picture. We are in another, at least here in Kentucky, election cycle, and there is much science denial on one side. Perhaps the real question that an educated voter should be asking is, what are the science credentials of the one doing the denying? If they have none, or only a little, should you be supporting that person if the stakes for this planet and the ability for us to live here are so high? Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud. 
So just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.